Well, we're pausing our Genesis series. We've been in Genesis for, I don't know, I should have counted 11 weeks now. Is that right, Ryan? Something like that, 11-ish weeks. And um, we're gonna keep going. It might take us a year, I don't know, but we will take breaks so that we can all come up for air. So we're pausing the series until next year. And we're observing the beginning of the Advent season. So for the next four weeks together, this week and then four more weeks, we're gonna be in Isaiah chapter 11, which is a remarkable chapter. And we're gonna begin in uh, chapter 10 this morning. Now, if you're new to observing Advent, I want to introduce you to it. It's like an old friend to me. It's not weird. Um, It's not ceremonial. It's not like Roman Catholic. It's actually very deeply evangelical and gospel-centered. So it's just like in the Easter season, we focus on the resurrection. And in the Christmas season, we focus on the birth of Christ. Advent is the season of four Sundays leading up to Christmas, the four Sundays prior to Christmas, where we think about the coming of Jesus to think about the second coming of Jesus. And the word Advent just means coming. That's all it is. Uh, So we look at this nativity moment to help us learn to long for and to live for the moment when our King comes down to renew all things. But just like those herald angels appeared to the shepherds outside Bethlehem at night when they most needed the light, so Advent begins in darkness in the bleak midwinter. And it might be kind of counterintuitive for us this time of year, because if you walk into any Starbucks or Target, which we dared to do day after Thanksgiving, it wasn't the best idea. You're gonna hear blasted through the speakers, things like it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? I agree. Advent is wonderful. It should shape us to be full of wonder that a world this bleak and hearts this hopeless could be the resting place for the King of glory. That's the kind of wonder that we're asking the Lord to grow in us this year. That's what Advent's all about. It's getting inside of this story of the first coming of Jesus so that we can learn to long for and live for the second coming. So to do that, we're going to look today at the prophet Isaiah, starting in chapter 10, verse 33. If you want to turn there now, if you have a, this archaic thing that's a paper Bible with you, um, you can put a finger in it. These chapters in Isaiah, this Isaiah 10 and 11, it's an invitation to be realistic. The prophet Isaiah is inviting us to see how bad things really are so that we can finally wake up to the fact that we need help. We need help from outside of ourselves, which means we're not talking about political victories. We're not talking about the help of legislative action or institutional reform or sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps, try harder moralism. Those things aren't what we need. We need God's help. Isaiah confronts the human dilemma and he tells us that we live in darkness and we are full of it, darkness that is. And if that's true, that if our hearts are like Jeremiah, the prophet says, wicked, deceitful above all things, if that describes us really deep down, then we can't 
be our own helpers, right? If pride, which we're going to talk a lot about this morning, if it runs through our veins like a blood infection, how can we get ourselves healthy? If we're surrounded by darkness and if we're full of darkness, then our only hope is the God who speaks into the darkness and says, let there be light. And that's why Isaiah 10 and 11 is a great Advent passage. Uh, Fleming Rutledge said, Advent is a time for fearless inventory of the darkness. I love that phrase. It puts steel in my spine. Fearless inventory of the darkness. So I suppose Advent takes a bravery of sorts. So we're going to start that inventory here with Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's the main image used in this passage? What imagery is Isaiah reaching for? It's trees, forests. When the prophets in the Old Testament wanted to describe human pride, the main image they reach for is trees. Big, lofty trees stretching their boughs up to the heavens. You might know the phrase, the cedars of Lebanon. It's generally what that's talking about. The truth is, though, that we were always meant to be a forest. That's why in Genesis 1.28, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's botanical. We're supposed to be a forest, not of lofty, self-exalting trees, but a, form, a forest of, this a lot of Fs, a forest of firmly rooted trees, firmly rooted watered by Eden rivers from God, sheltering under the tree of life. Think about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his word day and night. He's like a what? A tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither, and all he does, he prospers. Or Jeremiah 17, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. We were always meant to be a forest, trees. In fact, it's almost like we were meant to become little trees of life. I'm speaking in simile language now. Little trees of life, full of the life of God, not of our own life, not offering the world our own fruit, but his. We were supposed to bear the fruit of the tree of life on our branches. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Or Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. God's fruit born on your branches, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. God planted a garden in Eden and he put humanity there in it with this tree of life, not just to enjoy the fruit for ourselves, but to bear that fruit. We were designed for an Eden expansion project to take that little garden and cover the world, cover the earth with that sort of goodness in life, to fill the earth with people who reflect his glory and goodness, not with a forest of trees, loftily reaching for the sky, boasting in their own pride and power. That was never the plan. But time after time, all through the centuries, from Genesis to 2 Kings and beyond, humanity has just refused to trust God and bear the fruit of righteousness. And instead, they've reached for the stars, tried to make a name for themselves. There's nothing more dangerous or destructive than that. Nothing. So we're, we're parachuting into the middle of Isaiah, not the middle, really the first like fourth of Isaiah. So I just want to give a little bit of context for what we're dropping into. Okay, so we have to start with King David. King David's son Solomon took David's throne. Solomon's son Rehoboam took the throne after him. And in Rehoboam's time, the kingdom that was united under David and Solomon, it split into two kingdoms. Uh, you, you may be familiar with this from 1 Kings the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. So from Solomon's son on, Israel and Judah are two separate entities. Now, what happened is in the 700s, the 8th century BC, Israel was taken into captivity, into exile by Assyria. 200 years later, Judah goes into exile from Babylon. Isaiah is writing in between those two times and he's writing to Judah. So he's writing just before they're about to be carried into exile, Judah by Babylon. And what he does is he warns them of the dangers of their pride and points to their hope in God by looking back at the historical and recent example of Israel's exile. You with me? Israel, Assyria had already conquered Israel. And Isaiah says, think about what happened to them for a minute. Let's just think about this together. And here's what he says. This is from chapters nine and 10. This is basically what happened. The kingdom of Israel, who was meant to trust God for their sort of national safety, trusted Assyria instead. They, they were big, they were powerful, they were strong. So they threw their lot in with the Assyrians. So God raised up the Assyrians to come and cut down Israel in his judgment for their lack of trust. It says, Isaiah says that he picked up Assyria like an ax and wielded them in judgment against Israel. But because human pride is like cancer, two things happened. After Assyria came in and cut down Israel and carried them off to exile, first thing that happened is that Israel looked at the carnage around them and said, we can rebuild. It's all going to be fine. In fact, we'll make it better than before. And we don't really need God's help for it. We've got this. The second thing that happened is Assyria looked at their success, their military victory. And this is what the king of Assyria said in chapter 10, verse 13. By the strength of my own hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. Pride is dangerous. 
And here's what God said in reply to the king of Assyria, chapter 10, verse 13, 13, 15, I can speak. Mm. Isaiah 10, 15. Shall the ax boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Do you see what he's saying here? If God picked up Assyria like an ax, now the ax is saying, look, I've, I've swung God. So that was then, right? The historical example, the subtle pride of Israel, we can rebuild, we've got this, our future's in our hands, and the obvious pride of Assyria. But are we better off? Are we in a safer place? If I had to pick, um, not that I'm some great expert on philosophy, don't get me wrong, but if I had to pick uh, a philosopher who has most harmfully shaped our cultural moment right now, it would be the 18th century Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I don't, are you guys familiar with Rousseau at all? There's a book by Carl Truman called, um, help me, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self which walks through uh, a lot of the, unpacks the baggage of where we are today. Very useful book. Anyway, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He just had the audacity to say out loud what many of us say inside. And he had the arrogance to actually believe it. Here's what he said. Quote, the person who can love me as I can love is still to be born. No one has ever had more talent for loving I was born to be the best friend that ever existed. <laughs> I would leave this life with apprehension if I knew a better man than me. Show me a better man than me, a heart more loving, more tender, more sensitive. Posterity will honor me because it is my due. I rejoice in myself. My consolation lies in my self-esteem." End quote. Ouch. That's the guy whose fingerprints are all over us and our world. We've actually thought and lived like that's true of us. I mean, haven't we so often tried to order our world around us to make it more, most conducive to our comfort and happiness with us at the center of it? Haven't we chosen self-love over God-love and neighbor-love, self-esteem over God-esteem? Haven't we trusted ourselves with our future? Haven't we looked at where we are and how far we've come and taken credit for it? Rousseau was just saying what we actually believe. To quote the eminent Isaiah scholar, Ray Ortland, <laughs> he says, Isaiah's point is that pride is not the bizarre eccentricity of a few megalomaniacs. It's the spirit of the world. Our pride, our pride is what's wrong with the world. So that's the forest of pride that's grown in our hearts and it's the forest of pride that we live in. Reaching for counterfeit trees of life, trying to become a counterfeit tree of life, serving ourselves instead of God a forest of pride. Here again, the words, 
of God from Isaiah 10. Behold, the Lord God of armies will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. I grew up uh, in the foothills of Mount Baker in Washington state, a tiny little town called Deming. I dare you to find it on a map, very small. It was a logging town. And if you've been to the West Coast and Washington, you'll guess that business was booming. There's lots of evergreen around. And we were nestled in the beautiful Cascade mountain range, but many of the hills around where I lived that once would have been beautiful and impressive had been stripped bare, just desolate. I remember going the one time I've been deer hunting. <laughs> I went with my dad early in the morning and I don't think I saw a living tree. We just crunched through sort of the desolation. Have you ever seen a beautiful forested mountain just clear cut, reduced to rubble and stumps? That's the image that Isaiah wants you to have in your minds before you get to Isaiah chapter 11. Rubble and stumps. When God comes to judge us in our pride, that's all that will be left. So Isaiah tends an invitation to look into the bleak story of Israel and Judah, all their arrogance and God betrayal, and to say, I see my heart and my world in that story. If the fruit from our tree is rotten, we're not going to be able to live and grow and be healthy from eating that fruit. Why would we flee for safety to a tower that's foundation is crumbling? Why would we wash our clothes in a mud wallow? Why would we gloat in the forest of pride that God is about to reduce to rubble and stumps? Let me rephrase that. Why do we? Why do I? Enough. Enough of the counterfeit trees of life. We need the real thing. It's our only hope. We need the seed of the woman, the promised Christ, the serpent crusher, the son of God. We need Isaiah 11, 1. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love that passage. If you were to drop by my office during the week, uh, if I'm there, you might find me with um, a notebook and a pencil out and a bunch of books just spread. <laughs> they're, they're like friends and companions and they help inform what I write and what I prepare and what I study. And I like to picture Isaiah like that, but older and much wiser <laughs> with his favorite pencil in his study, um, the parchment in front of him, a quill maybe instead of a pencil and the Genesis scroll unraveled next to him an eye on the Genesis scroll, an eye on what he's writing. Um, maybe a solitary lamp kind of flickering in the darkness of the evening. And I say that because Isaiah 11 is written to tell again the story of new creation that we've been looking at in Genesis. It's a bright hope in our darkness. So from a world that's formless and void that's covered in darkness and despair. A world clear-cut, reduced to rubble and stumps. Isaiah leads us into seeing one little glorious sign of life. A tender little shoot unfurling out of this hewn stump. You ever seen a crocus come out of the snow in the middle of winter? It's just snow. And one little, yeah, you've seen it. They were all over uh, the meadows. One little flower will poke through and just bloom in defiance of winter. That's what this feels like, except it's not a flower. It's a tree of life. It's not just a tree that's a metaphor, a rich, beautiful, heavenly metaphor, but a metaphor nonetheless. It's a man, a man from the line of Jesse, Jesse was the father of King David. But it's not just a descendant of David. It actually doesn't say from the stump of David. It says from the stump of Jesse. It's not just a descendant of David. It's the true and better King David. And it's not just a human king. He's called elsewhere in Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us. He's both the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, who will come and put an end to what troubles us. And he's God himself. That's why uh, Isaiah says in verse one, that this king comes from the stump of Jesse. But then in verse 10 says that this king is the root of Jesse. Did you catch that? This king is the one who both comes from and was before Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
And so Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the town of Jesse. And a branch, a netzer, from his roots shall bear fruit. I told my wife I wasn't going to use Hebrew in this sermon, and then I did it. A netzer from its roots shall bear fruit. And so Jesus and his family moved to Netzeret, a town called Branch. And he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. This true and better king, the branch from the rubble of human desolation, that's the only hope. It was Judah's only hope. Looking forward in anticipation of the Messiah who would come. And it's our only hope looking back at the Messiah who did come and looking forward again to his second coming. The God who spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light, spoke into our darkness again. And the word that he spoke was the light of the world. The apostle John says this, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. We were always meant to be born of God. We were always meant to become a forest, bearing the fruit of the tree of life. We were always meant to be a city on a hill, a light for the whole world. Not because we shine so brightly, but because Jesus of Nazareth shines through those who believe in his name, those who receive him, those who God gives that gift of just letting go of our counterfeit trees. <laughs> I literally wrote, in a world of darkness, in a world of darkness and despair. How am I supposed to take that seriously? <laughs> in a world of darkness and despair, of just the rubble and stumps that have been left by human pride, the advent of Jesus shines very brightly as our only beacon of hope. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not, cannot, will not overcome it. And until we learn to love that, not that light, we will never turn from our darkness. You wanna change, you wanna grow in holiness, you wanna do better, love the light. Until we learn what it means that Jesus came as a baby in a feeding trough, humble beyond belief, we'll never be able to let go of our pride. Until we learn to put our trust in God and only God, we, just, we, we will not take the ax to our counterfeit trees of life. We won't do it. And we'll never be able to take and eat and live. The beginning of our great hope, friends, is that Jesus Christ has come into the world. And the consummation of our great hope is that he is coming back to put all things to rights.
So the Eden expansion project is very well underway. Do not love your pride more than your humble savior. Lean on him for all your good. Take and eat from him for all of your life. Amen. Amen. Yeah. When you believe on his name, he will take your doomed forest of pride and he will make you evergreen. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life, in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit now and ever. Amen.